Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan and our reader is Bill tonight. We have a new reader and our topic is the altar of burnt offering. We've been talking about for the last few weeks the furniture in the tabernacle and the basic idea behind this is living the tabernacle. A lot of the old, you know, quite a bit of the Old Testament is taken up with descriptions of the tabernacle and the New Testament tells us, the, the Lord, especially in Luke 24, says that all the Old Testament is about Him in some sense. And it's about us and how we go to heaven. What is it about these things that has to do with our lives? And I've been putting, frankly, this one off until the last. When you think about it, we're doing the altar of burnt offering tonight, which is out in the courtyard here. All the other objects that we've talked about so far in the tabernacle, uh, would they, we would think that they were nice. They're, they're fine. You know, a nice table with warm bread on it, nice candle stand or burning incense. You know, that's nice. Uh, what's not to love about that or a laver where they're washing the hands and the feet? But frankly, to modern tastes, the altar of burnt offering could be seen as quite disgusting. You know, animals are being sacrificed. Blood is being put on the horns of the altar. It had these four horns. The blood of the animal is poured out at the base of the animal, every sacrifice. So the amount of blood involved in this thing, I can't even imagine what the priest must have looked like after doing this for a living all day, every day with all these, all these animals and, so, and, and birds and so on. And the altar was used for all kinds of different sacrifices, it seems to be like the most essential and most active part of the whole picture, and, and yet it's kind of off-putting, this idea of animal sacrifice. What on earth does that mean? What does the altar of burnt offering mean? So if you're as curious as I am, friends, uh, please join us for this voyage, and let's open with a prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us together in your name. We're searching through the pages of your word, Lord, longing to know who you are and how it is that you would have us live our lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Pleasure to be with you, sending love to all of those who you are out there online and getting the audio and on the phone from Canada and all your beloved people who are here in the room and uh, sending special greetings to any ex-reader who might be in Florida right now. Um, <laughs> and maybe we'll take her back when she gets back. We'll and um, So talking about the altar of burnt offering, what does this mean? So the best way to start would be just to read a description of it. Let's go to Exodus, which is the second book. This is where all these things have started, isn't it, in these Bible studies. Exodus is where you get the descriptions. I'll remind you, in case you don't remember or don't know, that when Moses went up on the mountain, in addition to being given the Ten Commandments, he was shown, he saw a pattern of the tabernacle. He saw the whole thing with the eyes of his spirit. He could see how the whole thing was laid out. And this was one of the things that he saw, this altar of burnt offering, which was right inside the court. It's the outermost part of the whole tabernacle is this altar. It was the first thing that you would encounter. So let's read here in Exodus 27 what that altar was like. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. Mm. Okay. You shall make its horns on it. You shall make its horns on its four corners its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Ah, now you may remember that last time, or uh, uh, whenever it was, I lost in time and space, but we had the altar of incense. That was last time, wasn't it? And the altar of incense was called the golden altar because it was covered with gold, but this one's covered with bronze out here. And we'll hear a lot about bronze in this description. Do go on. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. You shall make it all of its utensils of bronze. Bronze. Okay, it's all going to be made out of bronze. 
The uh, what did you what did it call the forks? Is that what it had the in The forks your... and fire pans. Yes, and the forks and shovels. In the old King James, it is flesh hooks, which are kind of vivid, isn't it? Whoa. You know, but that that's what you're talking about to be able to move things around uh, on the altar. Go on. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You see, the whole idea of the tabernacle was that it was portable. It's a portable, it's a kind of an unusual idea, but a portable sanctuary, something you could carry, take down, carry to another place, set it all up. And so in the center of this square altar that was pretty large, five cubits was seven and a half feet approximately. So it's, it's seven and a half feet uh, wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet tall, so much larger than the golden incense altar we talked about last time and halfway down it inside it so it would have these four walls and then it had a grate a network it's it's basically like a grill isn't it like that you'd have fire underneath it and then you have this grate on the top there where the sacrifices would sit and that grate was was halfway up so that's that's what it's talking about and you had rings on that so that you could carry the grate because it was probably very you know a a bronze grate, I don't know how much that would weigh, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, but it was probably, a lot. took a few people to carry that. It was probably pretty heavy. So that had its own rings on it so you could carry it. And then what else in verse five there? You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. Midway, you see, so that, that network would be midway. So you put the sacrifice on top, got the coals underneath burning away, and that's where the heat comes from. Go on. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Mm. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. Yes, to carry it. That's right, so that you can take it from place to place. And then here's a, an important detail to me in verse 8. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it was shown you on the mountain, so shall you make it. Yes. So it's... Here we have this wonderful scripture. It's the Lord talking to Moses, and he says, well, you remember what it looks like, but all the rest of us don't remember what it looks like. So what are we supposed to do? You know, just to make, you know, you saw it. Just make it like that. Uh, but we didn't get to see it. But I'm very interested that it was hollow. It had no bottom, so to speak. You know, the altar of incense and these, these other things, the Ark of the Covenant would have a, a bottom and a top and sides and walls and so on. It was a, the Ark of the Covenant was a box, basically, rectangular box. But uh, this is not. This is just the outside. All, all you get is the, the outside of it, and then you'd lay that grate in there into the center. But you pull the grate out, and then you'd carry it along. And it wouldn't weigh too much. It, it, was, it was bronze but it wasn't as though it was all solid or something. It was completely hollow inside. So it's basically kind of a square tube in a sense, you know, open at both ends with, with a grate. And just make it the way that you saw on the mountain there. Okay, and look at Exodus 29. There's an interesting little detail here toward the end of Exodus chapter 29. Let's start at verse 35 there. This is about how the altar would be set up when you were originally, just the first time, the first time you use it. So many things in our world, the first time you use it, you have to initiate it or you have to do something or break it in or do something. You know, this was, this was how it would get set up. Let's read from 35 there. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them. Oh, so Aaron and his sons, these were the priests, would be consecrated. They would, so they had to be consecrated for seven days. Okay, and then what? And you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. Mm. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Okay, so what I see in there, I may be wrong, but what I see in there is I see three stages that it goes through. First of all, you offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. Isn't that what it said? It's a, it's a sin offering. So this is somehow supposed to 
cleanse uh, things of sin, and you cleanse the altar, right? So there's atonement, there's cleansing, and there's anointing, right? Those three things. And what did it say at the end there? You anoint it to sanctify it. To sanctify it. You see, the altar was a holy object, but it didn't start out holy. It had to be sanctified. So you had to do something to sanctify the altar. So you took these consecrated people, and then you'd go through this process where you'd offer a sin offering. Uh, There would be cleansing. There would be anointing with oil. And this would make it sacred, so that it would sanctify. Sanctify means to make it holy. It would make the altar holy. Now, there's an interesting detail that comes up after this and a point of interpretation. Look at verse 37. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. Okay. That last little bit is the point uh, I, I want to talk about a little bit. So seven days you make atonement for the altar and you sanctify it. So the altar's being sanctified. Now, the way that it reads here is at the end there that whatever touches the altar must be holy. Now, there's two different ways you could read that, isn't there? Like one would mean that don't bring anything unholy to touch the altar because that would be bad. Now that it's sanctified, everything that touches it must be holy. But there's also an interpretation where once the altar is sanctified, it sanctifies whatever touches it, that anything that touches it must become holy, you know, must be, must be holy because it, touched, because it touched the altar. That's what the altar does is it makes things holy. So those are two different interpretations. Let's look in the New Testament, see if we can settle this. Have a look in the four Gospels all the way to the right in your Bible there and go to Matthew chapter 23 because Jesus tells a story about this here. And at first it'll sound like we're way off topic, but we, we aren't. Uh, let's pick up at verse 16 in Matthew 23, if you will. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whatever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Okay, so the, it's saying swearing by the temple is nothing, but the gold of the temple, that's something. You know, that's that's... That really works, to swear by that. And the Lord is criticizing this. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees here. And go on. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Oh, so the temple, you're saying, sanctifies the gold. Like if you had ordinary gold lying around the house, that might not be holy. But it's the temple, being in the temple is what sanctifies the gold. And so he's criticizing them for saying, oh, well, the temple, who cares about the temple? But that gold, you know, swearing by that, that's, that's, that's powerful. But he's saying, oh, no, no, it's the temple that sanctifies the gold. And now we get more on topic in this next verse. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. The altar. Here we go. Here's the altar. Whoever swears by the altar. So what they say is, oh, swearing by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Mm. So if you swore by the gift that was on the altar, then you're obliged to put... You don't have... You know, swearing by the altar, like who cares if you do it or you don't do it. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, then you have to do it. And the Lord is criticizing that point of view. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Oh, what did that say? The altar sanctifies the gift. You see, that other passage could make you think, well, everything that touches it must be holy, meaning don't bring anything unholy in here. And there were certainly lots of regulations about that you couldn't offer, you weren't supposed to offer an animal that had any kind of blemish or anything like, you know, there, there, was, a, there was a lot of laws about the way that these sacrifices would work. But still, I think the point of the altar and the point of the Lord's story there 
is that the altar was a sanctifier. It was something that made things holy. Whatever touches it, in the Old King James, it just says whatever touches it shall be holy. You know, it didn't say must be. It said shall, just, just simply shall be. It, it will be holy because it touched that altar. Okay, let's read on in this little story here. So we have the temple and the altar, okay? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. Mm. Now, who dwells in the temple? That's supposed to be the Lord, right? That's God, right? That's what he's referring to. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything that's on it because what's on the altar is affected by the altar. It's made holy by that. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and God who dwells in it. And, and he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Wow. So we went from the altar to the temple to heaven and the throne of God. Boom, boom, boom. Didn't we? And it kind of suggests that there's some connection. Here's the sanctifier. What is the connection between the altar and God, the altar and the temple and God. And it's curious, isn't it? You may remember that, uh, I don't have the passage right in front of me here, but how Jesus compared himself to the temple, didn't he? He said, not one stone will be left on another. You know, tear this down, I'll rebuild it in three days. But he spoke about the temple of his body. Is it, so he likened himself, well, if, hmm, if he's the temple... Is he the altar? Is that altar a picture of him? The altar is something that sanctifies everything that touches it. Let's, let's consider that. Okay, let's go back to the Old Testament again, if you can go back to Exodus. So that question of the, so the, the altar seems like something that sanctifies whatever touches it. Whatever touches it shall be holy. Let's go to Leviticus. So turn to the right from Exodus and you get to Leviticus. Let's go to chapter 4. And we want to read about this uh, again. It's, it's kind of gruesome for modern sensibilities and so on. But this is a description in particular of a sin offering. And again, I want to emphasize there were so many different kinds of offerings. There was a difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering. There were peace offerings. There were wave offerings. There were offerings of thanksgiving. There were offerings when your children were born. You know, the, the offerings of atonement and so on. There were all kinds of different offerings. And some were of uh, grain. Uh, some were pouring out libations. You know, some were birds, some were animals, and so on. Let's read about this sin offering in the first few verses of Leviticus here. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments, of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. Yes, so without blemish is important there. But, but this is an interesting kind of sin. Uh, this is what differentiates it, I believe, from the guilt offering, is that this is a sin where you didn't realize you did the wrong thing. But isn't it an important question of how do you, when you've done something, like you, you know, your life has been stained by something that you did, what, how do you get over that? What do you do? Is there something you can do? Because you can never sort of undo the deed, but is there something, is there some process that helps you get beyond that or get into a different state and a different way of holding it. And so here's a situation that was sinning through ignorance, and then it rolls the priest in there, doesn't it? If the priest sins, then this is the sin offering. Okay, and describe how this works in full gory detail, please, dear reader. <laughs> he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Okay, the door of it, okay. Lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull, before the Lord. Hmm. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord 
in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Okay, so that's all the way inside the tent. He would come in there and he would sprinkle blood toward that veil of the sanctuary. Okay. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, so he'll put some of the blood on the horns of the altar in here. So he sprinkles the blood, then he puts some of the blood on those four horns, that altar of incense has four horns. So he puts blood on those four horns. And then what happens to the rest of the blood? And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of burnt offering, yeah. which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So this is at the door, you see? This altar is just right inside. There was a doorway down here at the bottom, for those of you who have the visuals. It was the first thing you'd encounter when you went through that courtway into the, into the tabernacle area, into this courtyard. And there's this, there's this altar of burnt offering right there. It's the first thing you encounter. And it emphasized that a couple of times in here, that that's right at the door there. Okay, and how does this work? He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails. So it's not the whole animal. There were whole burnt offerings, but that's a different thing. This is just the certain portions of fat from inside the animal, okay? The two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. As it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, yeah, so this is similar to the peace offering that's already been described. This is how you, you to take that fat, and this is what's going to go on the altar and get burnt, just this fat, okay? And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. Now listen to this. What happens to the rest of the animal? Because that's a small portion <laughs> of a large animal. So what happens to the rest? But the bull's hide and all of its flesh, with its head and legs, its entrails and offal, the bull's... The whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on the wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out of it shall be burned. Okay, so you take all the rest of it outside the camp. Now, outside the camp generally means, you know, that's where they would take uh, the dung and other things, you know, from all the people who are in the camp. It's generally unclean outside the camp, but there'd be a clean area outside the camp even though it's outside the camp, it'd be clean. And you take the ashes from the altar out there, and that's where you take all the other parts of the bull, and you'd burn them on a different fire out there. But it had to be a clean place, and you'd burn them out there. Uh, and the offal that it mentioned in 4 verse 11 is in the grand language of the old King James. It's dung. You know, that's uh, like everything related to that animal that wasn't these particular portions of fat were taken out and they'd be taken to the same place that you take the ashes from the altar. You know, an altar like that would generate a lot of ashes. So they'd take them out to this place. Okay, that's a, that's a description of the uh, sin offering. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 6, just a couple of chapters to the right. Now let's look at verses 8 to 13 because you get a few more little details about how this was supposed to work. In here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. Mm. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Okay, this is the burnt offering, different from that sin offering, and this is, uh, I believe, a whole burnt offering. And it, the main point is that it's on the fire all night. You leave it on there all night. Okay, go on. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar. And he shall put them beside the altar. So the whole thing, all night, burning all night, has been just reduced to ashes. Okay? Take those ashes and put them beside the altar. And then what? Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Mm. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. 
and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And the point about in order was interesting to me because when you remember the table of showbread, if you were with us for that episode, that was also in order. It was, there's an orderly, it sounds like a crazy process, but there was an order to this. And so the priest will lay this out in order on it every morning. And, she, and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Yeah, so that would just be the selective portion, those fat portions that would be burned there. It often says, we don't have any passages on that tonight, that a sweet aroma would rise up to the Lord you know, from, from the burning of that fat. And go on. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. It shall never go out. So this fire is burning constantly there. And I think those may partly be the ashes it was referring to before. They're taken out to a clean place. So when you have a whole burnt offering, it burns on there all night, and then you take the ashes out to a clean place outside the camp. Whereas if it's just a partial burnt offering, it's just the fat, then the rest of the animal, the blood is poured out at the base of the altar after the, the other sprinkling and so on in there. And then the, the rest of the animal is taken outside the camp and burned on wood out there. Very, very mysterious. Um, all right. <clears throat> Let's jump around a little bit. Uh, let's go into the middle of your Bible, roughly to the Psalms, and turn to the right, go through Isaiah to Jeremiah. I want to go to chapter 33. Uh, there's just a little phrase in here that caught my eye about sacrifices. What does this mean? You know, what is this that people, all these people, so you've got hundreds of thousands of people all around the camp, and they bring their animals, and if they, you know, have something they, they're guilty of, you know, they, they bring the animal in, or if the child is born, or what, whatever it is, they bring in their offerings. So this is going on all the time, this burnt offering. And a major part of what the priests are doing is just managing the situation. The priests get to eat uh, the, the meat of certain ones of the sacrifices and so on. And uh, so what does that mean, all that sacrificing? Uh, let's look at verse 11 here. It's got this long list of things that will, will be desolate. There won't be any of these things. So let's read this long list in verse 11. Are we in Jeremiah 33? Jeremiah 33, I'm sorry, yeah, <clears throat> verse 11. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness. So you won't have those. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And the voice of those who shall say... Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as, it, as at the first, says the Lord. Yes. Did you notice that phrase? Will bring the sacrifice of praise. I just thought that was an interesting expression. Is there something about these sacrifices that means... Praise. I'm always looking for little clues in Scripture because uh, my mind has long ago been ruined by reading Swedenborg's works, and he makes you think there's an inner meaning to all these things. And so is it going to tell us? And when you get something like the sacrifice of praise, it just makes me think, oh, is that what these sacrifices mean? That this is praising the Lord? That's what you're doing when you, when you bring these offerings there? So I get interested in those things. Uh, turn to the left and go back to the Psalms, about in the middle of your Bible. Let's go to Psalm 43, because there's a phrase about the altar here that caught my eye. Psalm 43. Mm. Mm. Yes, verses 3 and 4. Let's just read those, although it's not a long psalm. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Mm. Then I will go to the altar of God. Oh, what did that say? And then I will go to the altar of God. The altar of God. It just was kind of a striking expression. The altar. I'll go to the altar of God. And, and how is he going to get there? Send out your light and your truth. Isn't that what he said in the previous verse? Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your tabernacle. And I will go to the altar of God. Now you could say, well, that of just could mean that it belongs to God. Or is it like the sacrifice of praise is the altar of God, that the altar 
is that it stands for God. You know, is that, is that what the altar of God means? Okay, sorry, I've interrupted you. That's quite all right. To God, my exceeding joy, mm. and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Oh, well, there's praise again. I'll go to the altar of God, God, my exceeding joy, and on the harp I'll praise you, O God, my God. I just thought that was an intriguing phrase. Now I want to read a couple of passages that uh, may not make much sense at the beginning, but they use the term horn. You remember that altar has four horns on it. And let's read a few passages about the horns to try to get a particular handle on what that means. Uh, let's go to the left. It's about the halfway between where you are and the beginning of the Bible. It's 1 Samuel is what I'm looking for. So it's to the right of Joshua and Judges, to the left of the Kings and Chronicles and all that. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I'm looking for verse 10, and there's just a phrase here. And they, these kind of things are quite common, actually. Just one little, it'll sound like it's irrelevant, but I think there's some relevance here. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Mm. From heaven he will thunder against them. Mm. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointment. Exalted exalt the horn of his anointed. So who is this king? Uh, from, from a general standpoint, you could say, oh, well, the king means David or it's another king on the you know, throne of Israel or something. Uh, but Swedenborg says that those kings stand for the Lord. And so is this about God saying he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed? Now, Swedenborg says that horn means power but when you're talking, how was that, how did the altar become powerful again? Wasn't there like an atonement and then a cleansing and then it was anointed? Isn't that what it was? The horn of his anointed. It just seems to have some relevance here. And my point is that I'm getting the sense that this altar means something about the Lord. You know, the horn of his anointed. Uh, I'll explain some more in a bit. Let's go to 2 Samuel. Turn to the right. 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel 22, which is a chapter I love very much. Let's just read verse 3 there because we have another horn phrase here. Oh, let's read, let's read from verse 1. From 1. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. And on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Ah, so what we're about to read is what David said when he was delivered from all his enemies. Okay, go and on. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Oh, the horn of my salvation, go on, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you saved me from violence. One I, more verse, let's can't resist. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. There's praise again. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Yes, the God of my rock and him I'll trust. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation. Hmm my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. The horn of salvation. So the horns of this altar, do they have something to do with salvation? Do they have something to do with the Lord's anointed? And what could that possibly be? All right, let's turn to the right and go to 1 Kings chapter 1. It's right around the corner, actually. 1 Kings chapter 1, and but it's a long chapter, and let's read the last four verses starting in verse 50. This is an interesting story, and it's, there's several other parallels in Scripture of this type of story. It's a story about the horns of the altar. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Solomon was the king. He was the new king, and Adonijah is terrified of him. So what does he do? He's terrified. Where does he go? 
he goes and grabs the horns of the altar. He, he grabs a hold of them. Okay, go on. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Mm, he was very worried about Solomon killing him, but he took hold of the horns of the altar and said, Look, I, you know, don't, it's when you're kids, right? You have a safe zone like the, the couch, <laughs> you know, you can't be tagged or something. You know, the, the, it's a silly example. But the horns of the altar, like you're safe there. You, you, you grab a hold of that and nobody can hurt you. Interesting. Okay, verse 52. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Mm. So even if he's hanging under the horns of the altar, it's not about whether he's hanging under the altar, but whether he is worthy or whether he's wicked. That's, that's really what's going to determine whether he lives or not. Go on. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Yes, there are numerous stories in the Old Testament where the horns of the altar were called on for refuge. You know, you'd grab hold of them and that would protect you because surely nobody's going to kill you while you're hanging on to this, in some ways, extremely sacred object. You know, like, is it even that the altar sanctifies you while you're hanging on to it or something? And so you're not going to be killed because you're, you're holding on to the horns of the altar. Good. Let's turn to the right and go through 2 Kings, through 1 Chronicles to 2 Chronicles and go to 2 Chronicles chapter 8. And this is just a little thing that caught my eye about Solomon's offerings. Uh, look at verses 12 and 13 there in Second Chronicles 8. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord. Oh, the altar of what? The Lord. The altar of the Lord. We heard about the altar of God. This is the altar of the... Now that of is always interesting. What, what does that of doing between the altar and the Lord? What does that mean? Does it just mean it belongs to Him? or he in some sense is that altar. But the Solomon offered burnt offerings unto the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. So he was performing these burnt offerings on a constant, regular basis according to the sacred calendar of the time. And I was struck by that phrase, the altar of the Lord, offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord. You wouldn't really need to say of the Lord after you just said to the Lord a second ago, but it says the altar of the Lord. And there are other passages as well that have that expression in it. Um, okay. Uh, okay, maybe it's time to talk a little bit about these things now that you've loaded all that in your head. <laughs> uh, the whole idea of the tabernacle, in my mind, is that it has these three parts to it. The outermost part is the courtyard, where people are allowed to just go in there. You can bring your offering or whatever, and people would amass in there sometimes. And... Uh, so that's sort of an open area. That's the lowest level of it. Then you've got the holy place uh, where you can go in. And that's the Only the priest is allowed to go in there. And you have the table of showbread, the, the lampstand, and you have the altar of incense, the golden altar. And then you have the holy of holies that's behind the veil. And only the high priest is allowed to go in there only once a year and has to fill it with incense on pain of death. Uh, so you've got this ascending hierarchy of holiness and the holiest thing is the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant there. Why then is this altar for burnt offering so holy? 
what, what is so holy about it? Um, it might surprise you to know. Look, I, I do want you to turn back. Let's go back to Exodus 29 again. Sorry, friends, we just got to go back again because there was something in there that was very interesting to me. Uh, look, look at verse 37 again. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be the most holy. And the altar shall be the most holy. I don't know exactly how to pronounce the Hebrew, but it's something like Kodesh Kadashim, something like that. The Hebrew expression is, the altar shall be the holy of holies. I thought the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was, inside here. And yet after this altar on the outside, the bronze altar is just made of bronze. If you get a bronze medal, does that mean you're the best in your sport? No, it's like level three. Silver's higher. Gold is the best. What is this bronze doing being the most holy? It's the, most, it's the holy of holies. The altar shall be, it doesn't start out that way, but it shall be the holy of holies. It'll be the most holy thing. Most holy, it says that right there, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Even in the English. Most holy. The altar shall be most holy. What is going on? And all this animal sacrifice, and it's just this hollow thing with a grate in the middle. Why isn't this the most holy? This is called the most holy place. This is called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is behind the veil. How did this get to be the most holy? Out here, right inside the door, where all the riffraff come in. How did that get to be the most, most holy? What is going on here? Well, I think what's going on is that this is a picture of the incarnation of God in Jesus. And the God part is up here in the Holy of Holies. Ten Commandments, all made of gold, the cherubim protecting, all that kind of stuff. But does the Lord want to sit up there in the highest heaven only being visited by one person once a year and the place is so full of incense you can hardly see them when they walk in the door? Is that, does His divine love, will He rest with that deal? No. He wants to be as close to the people as he can get. Did his altar start out holy? No, interestingly. It had to go through atonement, cleansing, and anointing. Huh. Christos, Christ, means the anointed. He is the anointed. He, it becomes holy. And once it's sanctified, then it sanctifies everything that touches it. Everything that touches it shall be holy. Let's go to the New Testament for a second. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark right here, see whether we're on to anything. I want to go to, what do I want to go to? I forget what I want to go to. I want to go to Mark. Where is it here? I want to go to Mark. Is it chapter 7? What is it? I think I actually wrote this in my phone somewhere instead of copying it onto this document. Let me just look here real quick. There's a Mark passage. It's worth a suspense, isn't it? Yeah. Let's see what we'll see. <laughs> oh, I'm not finding it. Where did I write it? There it is. Oh, no, that's a different one. I do want to read that one. Let's go to Mark 9, verse 24, because I think that's related. Mark 9, 24. And so uh, this is about the child that was often thrown into the fire, and they're begging for help. And in verse 23, what does the Lord say? Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I'll try to show you in a moment why I think that's related to the, um, 
why I think that's related to what we're talking about tonight. Uh, I'm sorry that I might... Oh, here it is, 6.56. Go back to 6. Thank you. Suddenly saw it in my notes. Okay. Uh, this is about the Lord. Let's... Verse 54. Mark 6.54 on down from there. And when they came out of the boat immediately, the people recognized him. This is Jesus and the disciples, and people recognize the Lord. What right. do they do? ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Mm. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many touched him were made, and as many as touched him were made well. As many as touched him, everything that touches the altar shall be sanctified. Everything that touches the altar shall be sanctified. I think uh, part of what's going on with this imagery, first of all, let's talk about the hollowness. The, the, the thing, thing, thing is hollow. Isn't that beautiful? If this is an image of Jesus in this world, and many people believe that this, this is what it's talking about, uh, but the way that people hold it is they think of that as like, oh, well, Jesus is the sacrifice. You know, he was sacrificed and his death uh, somehow had this transforming effect and now we're all sanctified because he died in that way. No, it was much more about the process that he went through. It was about his going through the atonement and the cleansing and the anointing and all, you know, he went through a process to become this and he was hollow. Like there was nothing but God. There's just heat blasting through there, you know? It's this divine, all he is is like a bronze box. And the bronze, and it's just the outside, it's not even top and the bottom of the box. It's just a, just a, a thing like this. Uh, and the divine energy is flowing through there. Jesus said again and again, hey, the words that I say to you, they're not mine. The works that I do, I do from the Father, and I was sent by the Father, and all this. He, he, it's just a box. And bronze means good. It means usefulness. It means loving actions on the outermost level. That's why everything connected with this thing was made of bronze. And the Lord came into this world and He did all that healing and all that teaching on the out, taking people's physical bodies and healing them. It's bronze. Gold is this heavenly love, you know, and yes, that's in there. The Lord is this whole thing. He's the whole tabernacle. But He's especially in His incarnation. He's this altar on the outside. And there's a grate. I love the image of the grate. I can't get it out of my mind. You have this network. Isn't that kind of like the connection between the divine and the human? In some, you know, there's this thing, and, and it's, it's solid enough to hold something on it, but it's completely porous, like it lets that heat come right through. I love it. How tall, trivia question, how tall was this altar again? It's, it, it was three cubits, it said. About seven and a half feet. For four, four and a half feet tall and then seven and a half wide and long. And the three, Swedenborg says, means that it had three levels. Actually, this altar means all three, like it has something of the Holy of Holies in it. And it has something of this. It's three. It's three cubits high, not two like the, like the other altar of incense in there. It's three high because it has all those levels to it, but it's coming all the way down to the bottom. And this finally explained to me a mystery that I stumbled over before because I put the laver in the wrong place. The, even though the laver is the first thing the priests had to do, they had to wash before they do the sacrifice, the Lord doesn't want you walking in and you bump into a laver. He wants you bumping into Him. He, wants, he is the door, right? He is the door. They kept saying the altar is at the door of this tabernacle meeting. This is where the Lord meets us, right? He, he wants to be as far out there as He can get so that He can contact people. Now, what does this altar do for us? Well, it sanctifies. And how I'm holding this right now, um, see, we're supposed to bring something unblemished to the Lord. We're supposed to bring the Lord the best thing that we've got. What are the best things 
that we have, they're actually in God's sight pretty worthless, right? Like we don't have, Swedenborg hammers this idea that of ourselves, of our own lower selves, we don't, what do you have, what are you going to give the Lord? What's your big thing that, well, you know, it's like Peter in the Transfiguration says, well, it's, I'm glad I'm here because I can help you build a tent or something. You know, it's just silly. Like, what do we have to offer? But what the Lord does is he sanctifies whatever we bring in. Isn't there a risk? Isn't, isn't religion, everything having to do with religion and spirituality, isn't it prone, isn't it heavily prone to a kind of hypocrisy or at the very least just a going through the motions Another, oh, blah, 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 I did this, and I walked through, and I did the thing, and I did the thing, and nothing happened. It wasn't really real. It didn't do anything. But I went through the motions, and I guess religion's just nothing. It's worthless or something. But the Lord wants to sanctify. He came into this world to cook that whole thing, to take it up to another level. He came into the world to take the best thing that we've got and make it real, to transform it. And I don't know if you can see this in your own lives, good friends, but I can see in my own life that I go through the motions. I do my pathetic repentance. I don't even know how to do it. I do it in the wrong order with the wrong issues, and I just go through the motions, you know? And that's my little goat that I've got to offer the Lord. And I bring that in, but I'm trying to have a relationship with the Lord. So I bring it to this tenant meeting, and I just say, well, it's my best goat, you know. And the Lord takes that thing and just takes it up to a whole other level. He makes it real. That's who he is. When we're, you know, I don't know if any of you have any been, ever been in a love relationship or any foolishness like that. Uh, you go, there's a certain amount of going through the motions sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, like you're, you're trying, but actually there's this horrendous incompatibility, which is that you're two different people. Sometimes you're even two different genders. You know, like, how is that ever going to work? So, uh, but the Lord can make that thing real. He can turn that thing into love. Now, it doesn't happen instantly. Sometimes it's got to be out there burning all night, you know? But he can do it. He can turn our feeble, stupid thing into something real. He can turn our going through the motions into something living. He can bless it with life. And that's why he came into this world. That's why he wanted to be as close to us as he could get. I don't want to hang out here in the the Holy of Holies. I want to make this the Holy of Holies all the way on the outside so I can deal with people's thoughts and feelings. So that if you have a feeling, what about our prayers? Isn't it possible for our prayers to sometimes be kind of hollow, going through the motions or whatever? Offered on the altar, the Lord can turn that into real prayer. We can't do that for ourselves. He can turn our love into real love. He can turn our silly thoughts into true insights. He even gives some of us wisdom eventually. It's amazing. (laughs) How does that happen? But the Lord is able to transform the offering. That's what the fire that's constantly burning, that divine love that wants to transform us, take us to the next level. It sanctifies whatever touches it. If we bring something to the Lord and we say, Lord, I, you know, what did the guy say? I believe Help my unbelief. He's still got an untransformed goat there in his unbelief. And he does believe and he's trying, but all he's got is this untransformed goat. And so he needs to put that on the altar, give it to the Lord. The Lord will turn that into a real belief. Help, help me, help my unbelief. We can't do that for ourselves. The Lord is the one who turns it all into something real. The same with religion on a larger scale. Uh, It's so easy for religion to just be so awful. And Swedenborg has this wonderful quote somewhere. I can't quote it precisely, but it was something like, there is nothing better 
than a good religion, and there is nothing worse than a bad one. And it's kind of the truth, isn't it? <laughs> when religion goes south, it's bad. And what the Lord wanted to do by coming into this world was to turn that thing meaningful, you know, to turn it into something. So the altar, remember that passage that said that the altar, the altar and the gift that's on it, right? And the temple and the God who dwells in the temple, that's a divine spirit dwelling in Jesus' body. And the God and the throne of God, you know, and that throne even means the divine human. It means Jesus. All those images are about something holy coming down in this world and transforming the things that we bring as we try to have a relationship with that. And one other element that I'll deal with pretty quickly is just that what are those horns? The horns are the power on the outside, have to do with the power of Scripture. And uh, protection is another thing the Lord wants to provide us with. So you go grab a hold of the horns, you know, throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord. What does the Lord say in Luke 13? He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Swedenborg says, uh, we need to run to the Lord for refuge or else we perish. Uh, that's throwing yourself on the mercy of the Lord, isn't it? Just grab. And so that's the ultimate of when you're at the bottom, you know, and you don't even have an offering. It's just yourself. You know, you go there and you grab a hold of that horn and just hope that Solomon takes pity on you and isn't going to end your life. You know, that, that, that because you've given yourself to the Lord and you said, please protect, I know I did the wrong thing. But please, it's a little bit like the woman who, who weeps and washes his feet with the Lord's feet with her hair and all that, and she's just distraught about the way that she's lived her life. Well, you throw yourself on the horns of that altar, and you get protection from hell. It's a refuge. It's, a, it's one safe place, you know, where you're not going to be spiritually killed. What did Solomon say to Adonijah? He said, well, if there's wickedness, You'll die, but if you're if you're on the level or something, you're gonna you're gonna be fine. And he lets him go, he lets him go to his house. And that's something of the Lord interacting with us through that image of the altar. I don't know if I've done justice to this, good friends, but um, my closing thought for you to sort of summarize and as briefly as possible what I've just said is that the altar of burnt offering, once it was sanctified, made everything holy that touched it, and everyone who touched the Lord was made whole. They were healed. This altar is an image of the Lord and the way that He wants to, He wants us to allow Him. When we bring our offering, we're allowing Him to do His thing that He does, to, to, to make us new. He wants to do that for us. He wants to make our love real. He wants to make our understanding true. He wants to make our actions genuinely useful. Only the Lord can do that for us, and He can only do it when we say, You are the Lord. I want to offer to the Lord something on the altar of the Lord. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. Thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world to be as close to us as possible, to be present within our minds and hearts. We thank you, Lord, for your transforming power. Thank you for making things in us real. Thank you for sanctifying things in our hearts for lifting us up. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so the Lord can make us real.